Well, good morning again, everybody. Good to see you. Um, as you heard, today's sermon is not going to be the typical style sermon. Uh, I put a call out last week and a couple times throughout the week uh, for you guys to submit any questions you might have about God, theology, the Bible, uh, whatever's on your mind. And uh, I was getting a little worried because we got to Wednesday and we actually didn't have any questions. I thought I was going to have to ask myself questions, but at least I would know the answers to those ones. So, um, but a bunch came in, uh, praise the Lord. So um, I actually had way more than I could possibly answer. So Thank you guys for, for sending questions. A couple things I want to say before we get started. Uh, if I did not pick your question, that's not because I didn't think it was a good question. Uh, some of you asked really great questions and important questions that I know if I tried to answer this morning, I wouldn't be able to do them justice. Like some of them really needed a, a whole sermon. And so that's not to say I'm trying to dodge your question if I didn't answer it. Um, hopefully in the future we can get to it in a, in a full sermon. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing I want to say is um, I don't want any of you to think by me putting out this call for questions that I'm under some illusion that I have all the answers. Uh, I, I love to think about God and the Bible and theology. Uh, I just spent several years in seminary uh, doing that. And so um, I, I feel like I have something to offer, of course, um, but I don't, I don't know it all. I, I definitely don't, and some of you, I'm sure, know things that, all of you know things that I don't know, and so I hope that we can enrich each other as we talk about these things. Obviously, I'm going to be doing the talking this morning, so, <laughs> but um, I just want to be clear, like, you know, I don't think I have it all figured out, but I, I, I do hope that what I offer this morning is helpful for you guys. So, before we get into it, let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you that you have uh, created us as uh, people who think about things and who uh, have questions. I uh, thank you for curiosity, which makes life interesting and makes um, faith uh, a joy of discovering more about who you are. And I pray that our curiosity would, would draw us closer to you uh, rather than uh, leading us away from you. Uh, I pray that this morning uh, that that we would grow in wisdom, and uh, I pray, Lord, that if I say anything that's not of you, that it would uh, fall on deaf ears, God, that it would be forgotten. Uh, I pray that anything that I say that is true wisdom, that is of you, Lord, that it would be retained. And I do pray, Lord, that as we talk about tough questions together as a community, uh, that we would be able to enrich one another, that your Holy Spirit would uh, work through us uh, to draw us closer to your truth. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I've got a new clicker this week. Remember last week the clicker wasn't working. This is a new one. All right, so first question. I'm going to start with an easy one. Why did God create us? Beyond the often touted vague concept that he just had to share himself out of his goodness, if he is complete and whole, why create anything? Worlds, angels, humans, etc. It's a good question. I like that one. So why did God create anything? Well, I'm going to start by answering that in the simplest possible way. Because he wanted to. Um, <laughs> one thing that Genesis chapter 1 makes very clear is that God wanted to create. 
Uh, I know there's a lot of debate over exactly how we should be interpreting Genesis chapters 1 and 2, how to reconcile it with modern science or not reconcile it. Um, but wherever you lean on that spectrum of trying to understand Genesis, one thing is very clear, I think we can all agree on, which is that we're supposed to learn theology from Genesis. You know, even if it's not necessarily a science textbook, we're supposed to learn theology, which means we're supposed to learn about who God is and about who we are in relation to God. And what we learn in those opening chapters of Genesis is that God is the creator of everything. He is the source. He is the author of everything. And he wanted to create everything. Because everything comes into being through his command, right? He says, let there be light, and there's light. It's a consequence of his will. Uh, he says, uh, let the land produce vegetation, and the land produces vegetation. And not only that, but as he creates, he looks at what he's creating, and he goes, oh, that's good. You know? So God wants to create, and he is pleased by what he makes. And what I'd like us to recognize, this is something I learned in seminary that I thought was really interesting, is that this aspect of the Genesis creation account is very different from most other creation accounts during that time. Um, because most creation accounts didn't see creation as the result of the goodwill and intention of the creator. Um, a lot of creation accounts, a creation was an accident or it was a byproduct of violence between the gods. Like, say, the gods got in an argument, and one god got his arm cut off, and that became the world. Uh, so the Genesis creation account is actually very different. We generally would expect that if there's a creator, then that creator intended to make the creation. But we're living now after centuries of Judeo-Christian influence. Uh, but the reality is that when most people uh, came up with these creation myths and conceived of how everything started, things were often the result of an accident or a byproduct of violence. So Genesis tells a very different story, a God who deliberately creates because he wants to. So the simple answer, God created because he wanted to. But I think there's a deeper question that's being asked here, uh, which is, Why did God want to create? Right? Uh, because like that question reminded us, God is whole and complete within himself. Uh, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need the world. He's not sitting there by himself unfulfilled with all this longing, like, oh, I just, I just need to create people. Right? So why would he do that? Why would he want to create this world of people and animals and angels and everything? Well, I'm going to respond to that question with two questions for you guys. So, you know, Jesus had this tactic often if people would ask him questions, and then he would respond by asking questions. It's a very, I think, interesting way of teaching. So two questions for you. Why do you create anything other than what sustains your livelihood? Right? Most of us have a hobby unrelated to our income. Uh, that involves creating something. It might be working on cars, it might be taking photographs, uh, writing music, or coming up with stories. So why do we do those things? Do we need to do them? Not really. Uh, we do them because of the joy involved in creating. Right? We create them not because we have to create, uh, but because we delight in it. Now the second question I would ask if you want kids or you chose to have them, why? 
Um, I think that choosing to have kids has got to be the most profound creative act that human beings can engage in. Uh, but we don't, we don't need to have kids. Right? We need to have kids in a literal sense to continue the species, right? But everybody is a whole and complete human being, whether they have had children or not. Um, and yet most of us, at some point in our lives, we have this desire to have children. And it's really quite crazy when you think about it, because you're, <laughs> you're, you're taking on this incredible amount of responsibility. Um, and I think the reason is because we want to share our love and knowledge and experience. Uh, we have this desire to give of ourselves, which is to love. And so I think by asking ourselves those two questions, we can get some insight into why God wanted to create the world. Uh, God is not exactly like us by any stretch, but we are made in his image. So we are like God in many ways. And uh, I would suspect that God's will to create was motivated by the same kind of joy that we feel when we create something, just for fun. Not because we have to, but because we, we delight in doing that. And I also suspect that his, uh, his desire to create the world was similar to the desire that we have when we want children. Um, because we want to experience the profound love that comes from giving of ourselves in that way. You know, the Bible says that God's nature is love. Right now, our nature is not love. God's nature is love. So if we often have a desire to give of ourselves in this profound way, how much more so must God desire to give of himself, since his very nature is love? So in summary, why did God create? God created because he wanted to, and he wanted to, because of the joy of creating and because his nature is love. He wanted to give of himself. He wanted kids. And I think when we learn to look at the world this way, it kind of transforms our perspective in a good way. Because now when you're looking at the world, you're not just seeing accidents, right? But you're, everything from every tree to every person is an overflow of the creative joy and love of God. Like, that's why anything exists. It's because of this overflow of love and joy. And I think when we learn to see things that way, it can really change our perspective for the better. So, love that question. Thanks, thanks for asking it. So number two, considering different exhortations from the Bible to endure hardship and submit to God's discipline, such as Hebrews 12, 6-7, as his children, how do we do this? Is there any practical way or intentional way of doing this? So one of the reasons I picked this one is because it was not the kind of question I expected to get. It's an interesting one. You know, usually expect like, well, what about the dinosaurs and that sort of thing? But this is like, how can I be disciplined? <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I'm glad somebody's thinking that way. That's good. Um, so for anyone who's wondering, uh, that passage, Hebrews 12, 6 through 7, says, The Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Now, that right there is actually a quote from Proverbs. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is not disciplined by his father? So, I just talked earlier about how we can kind of think of our relationship to God as being analogous to a parent having children, right? Uh, here again, it seems that scripture is asking us to do that, right? Uh, we're supposed to think of our relationship with God in terms of a father and, and a son. And the father loves the son, and because the father loves so, the son so much, uh, he's going to be motivated to do what he can to correct the son's behavior, right? If the son is going in the wrong direction, if the father really cares, he's going to make some effort to make things right. So if we're challenged to think of our relationship to God in that way, and then we're asking the question, okay, how can I submit to God's discipline? How do we do that? Um, I think that the analogy helps us, right? Let's keep going with the analogy. Let's keep thinking in terms of the analogy. So how does a son submit to a father's discipline? Uh, well, what a son will do is pay attention to the correction, right? Not just talk back, but actually listen. Uh, not throw a tantrum, <laughs> but actually pay attention. Um, so he'll allow himself to be corrected by, um, by the instruction. So I would say, just to put it simply, a practical way that we can submit to God's discipline is by being willing to be corrected, by having an attitude where we're saying, I, I am willing for you to tell me something different than what I think or want. Um, and I, I think that one very practical way that we can think about that is in light of Scripture. Now, so sometimes when we come to Scripture, if we come across anything that we don't like, we think, well, I'll find some way to explain this away. Um, and I do think that sometimes we come to things in Scripture that are hard for us to hear, and when we look at them more closely, we realize that they actually say something different than we thought. Sometimes that happens. But if every time we encounter something that we, we're just like, I don't like that, um, we're not being open to correction. We're not being open to the idea that God might be trying to discipline us to change in some way. And if the Bible never tells us anything that we don't like, we're probably not reading it right. You know? we, are, uh, we are, as human beings, are people who struggle with sin. Uh, we, like a parent and like a child with a parent, uh, are often told things that, that bother us. But ultimately, it's for our good. Um, and so I think that one really practical way that we can submit to God's discipline is being willing to allow Scripture to sometimes tell us things that are hard for us to hear um, and not being quick to dismiss or reinterpret things that are, that are difficult for us. Okay. So next one. Question three. Since I found Christ, I've been determined to only date nice Christian boys. However, I recently talked to my mom, who is also a Christian, and she, she said that you should not discount boys who are not strong Christians because you might be able to help them grow in faith. But now I'm confused. This is a very practical question. Um, I think one of the things that makes this question a little difficult to answer is that our society has kind of an ill-defined notion of what dating is. Uh, <laughs> Now, if by dating you mean hanging out with somebody, getting to know them, finding out what their core values are, then I would say 
there should be a fair amount of freedom in, in, in who you do that with, as long as you have appropriate emotional and physical boundaries in that process. But if by dating you mean, I'm going to kind of enter into this sort of exclusive romantic relationship, uh, high emotional intensity, when it comes to that, I say you want to be very careful about doing that with somebody that shares your core values. Um, and I would also say, you, if you're going to try to influence someone to move from having no faith to having faith, or moving from a nominal faith to a strong faith, it's best not to have romance complicate it too much. Um, so, I mean, I would say the truth is God works in all kinds of ways. Um, and we want to be open to the fact that he doesn't always work according to very rigid rules. Um, and I, I want to be sensitive to that. You know, I know people who have, who have come to faith. Um, I know people who have come to faith and they started dating and one of them was a Christian and one of them was not. And, and that does happen sometimes. And, but I just, I, wanna, I want to extend a warning of caution because when you develop close emotional ties with somebody um, but you don't share certain core values it can be painful if you reach a point where you feel like oh we don't share these core values and so we need to to go our separate directions because at that point you can have developed very close emotional ties and those can be very painful to break um, so I just I want I want to uh, to, to put that warning out there and um, encourage us to be, to be careful about that. And I've, I've known some couples where they kind of got into the relationship. One was not a, a follower of Jesus. The other one was. They became very tied together. And it got to the point where it lasted long enough that um, it felt like there was no, there was no good option <laughs> for what to do. Um, and in the situation, I would describe it like this. Um, there was the option of ending, going through a really painful breakup, like an agonizing breakup. There was the option of uh, one of them, the, one of them who was a believer, sacrificing Jesus as a supreme value. Um, and that's, that's really tough, right? Or there was this option of maintaining the relationship and faith, like for the individual who's a believer in Jesus, but they would never feel like they were fully united to their partner because there's this deep part of the core of who they are that they were never able to really share with the other person. Um, and so all three of those, those, those situations are really tough, a tough one to be in. And so again, I, I really caution people to be careful about um, um, trying to merge their lives and get really romantically entangled with somebody who doesn't share their core values. So, next one. What are the different Bible translations and their level of accuracy? So, I am not going to bore us by going through every uh, Bible translation in assessing it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but I do, um, I feel like there's a, a couple important things to say about this issue. Because I've seen this issue divide people before, and that really bothers me. So 
my professor of New Testament at Gordon Conwell, uh, one of my professors of New Testament, Sean McDonough, I love this guy, uh, he said, I get this question all the time, what's the best translation? He said, for the most part, the Bible translations that are common today are good. None are perfect, but they're good. So just pick one that you can read and understand and go with it. Um, and I agree with him. Not that my opinion really matters, because I'm not a PhD of biblical languages, but this guy had the authority to say that and for it to mean something. So that was what he, he thought, and I tend to, to agree with him. So the difficult thing about assessing translations is that when you're saying, well, which one is the most accurate? Um, the thing is, translation is more complex than just taking a Greek word, turning it into an English word, taking another Greek word, turning it into an English word. Because it's not just about literal translation, it's about the translation of ideas, right? Uh, a translation isn't very valuable if all the words are perfectly translated in a literal sense, but the ideas aren't getting across. So for example, a literal translation of it's raining cats and dogs, if put into another language, might not mean to the hearer what, what it actually means, right? They could be literally seeing in their mind cats and dogs falling from the sky. That would be a literal translation of that statement, but the idea isn't getting across. Now, a less literal translation would be it's pouring rain outside. And if you had somebody that was looking at that, that translation from a distance, they might be like, oh, you changed the words, and there's a different number of words, and they might be judging that translation because it's not exact, right? But as a reader, you're going to understand the meaning of that translation a lot better. Um, so some translations make it a point to be very, very literal, and they translate word, word by word, right? But other translations are more about translating the meaning, the ideas. And uh, <clears throat> so we need to be careful about assuming that just because a translation claims to be a word-for-word -word translation, that it's more accurate, or that it's going to be able to get the ideas in the Bible across to you better than one that's more of an idea translation. Um, so I want to say that. Uh, I think we can, we can learn things from word-by-word -word translations that we can't necessarily learn from um, things that, translations that are more idea-oriented or paraphrases, and vice versa. So it's good to, if you're studying scripture, it's good to look at multiple, multiple sources. Two other things I want to comment on. King James Bible and the message. Kind of opposite sides of the spectrum. <laughs> okay. So the King James Bible is very poetic, and it sounds very reverent, right? Uh, but that's a little misleading. Now, I'm not saying I have anything against the King James Bible. I'm just putting a caution out there, because I know the King James Bible, in some people's mind, is like the pinnacle of great translation of Scripture. So I, I just think it's important for those who say that or those who think that to know a couple things. Um, one thing is that the King James Bible is super old. It was produced in the 1600s initially. And since then, scholarships developed a lot. Like, we know more about the languages than we knew when the King James Bible was first put together. And we have more original bi biblical manuscripts uh, than we had. And the world is more connected, so we can share and compare our original biblical manuscripts, which couldn't have been done 
uh, back when the King James was originally written. So the idea that the King James is the most accurate is, is really problematic because we've learned so much since then. Um, the second thing about the King James Bible we need to be careful about is, as I said, it sounds very poetic, it sounds very reverent, um, but that gives, us, that gives us the impression that when the Bible was originally written, it was written in this very formal and regal-sounding language. Uh, but when the New Testament was written, it didn't sound like that to the original readers. Because when the New Testament was written, there were two kinds of Greek that were around. So one was classical Greek, and that was the language of the elites. That was like the formal language. And then there was this, this version called Koine Greek, which was common Greek. And that was the lang language of the common folk. That was the language of farmers. And you can probably guess which version of Greek the New Testament was written in, right? It was written in Koine Greek. It was written in the language of the people. Uh, now, when we hear the King James Version of the Bible, do we hear the language of the people? No, not at all, right? And so the truth is, when the first hearers of the Gospels and of Paul's letters heard what was being said in the Greek, it would have sounded to them a lot more like the message sounds to us than the King James Bible sounds to us. Um, and again, I'm not saying the King James Version is bad. I'm just saying it's good to be mindful of that. You know, that, that, that if we want to get a sense of what the Bible sounded like to the original hearers, it would have sounded like the language of the people. So that's what I have to say about the King James Version. As for the message, okay, for those who don't know, the message is a paraphrase of the Bible. It's an attempt by this guy named Eugene Peterson to try to put the Bible in very modern-sounding language. Um, it's fairly popular today, so that's why I want to say something about it. Um, first of all, I love Eugene Peterson. I think he's a brilliant guy. Uh, he is no slouch. Like, he knows the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, he, he didn't just open up a, a new international version of the Bible and say, how can I make this sound more modern? He, he went from the Greek and the Hebrew into, into the modern language that he put it in. Um, so I love Eugene Peterson. I think he's brilliant. Um, and I think that the message can be a very valuable tool. But it is a modern paraphrase, so it takes a lot of liberties. Uh, you know, this is kind of an example. So I don't think this actually occurs in the message, but because the message is trying to speak in the language of the people, the, the message might translate something like Babylon as Vegas. <laughs> so it's trying to get, give you a feel for what's being communicated there, right? But if you just read the message and you don't, you don't actually go back more to the textual roots, you can miss a lot of stuff. Um, and and, and it, it, can lead you, it can lead you in the wrong direction sometimes, is all I'm saying. So the message is a great tool. Sometimes if I'm hung up on a passage and I cannot figure it out, and I'm like, I, I'm like, I wonder what Eugene thought of this. And then I'll go to the message and I'll read it. And sometimes it helps me and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so I recommend using it as, as a tool. But if you really want to study the Bible, if you want to get into the nitty gritty, you need something else. Um, so I recommend using it alongside uh, other translations. But yeah, when it comes to the major translations, NIV, NASB, RSV, ESV, find one that you can read and understand for the most part and go with that. 
The important thing is, if, do you get it? Do you understand it? That's, that's more important than is everything exactly perfect? Because if the ideas aren't getting across to you, the whole point of translation is lost, right? So, all right. So we have time for one more. This is kind of a big one. Maybe I'm foolish to take it on, but how does free will have a place if God is sovereign? <laughs> okay, so even more so than the Bible translations one, this is a question that divides a lot of people. And I will give, I will propose uh, my resolution to this issue. And I recognize that some of you may find it problematic, some of you may not agree, and I just want to say, that's okay. Um, I do want this to be a place where there is room for disagreement on things that are not core, core issues. So, but this is an issue that, I, for whatever reason, my brain is always compelled to think about, and there have been times in my life where I've been very troubled by it. Um, and so, I recognize that there may be some of you who feel that way as well. Whoever asked the question might feel that way. So I do want to take some time to wrestle through it a little bit. Um, but it's definitely not an easy one. So this question is hard to answer because it has huge, two huge concepts in it, uh, free will and sovereignty. And whether or not those two concepts can exist simultaneously depends a lot on how we define them. And people have different ideas of what they mean. So, for example, let's talk about this word sovereign. Sovereign. Not a word that we use a lot in, in common language. In a lot of people's minds, the word sovereign means controls everything. Okay? Uh, so, for the people who think of sovereignty in this way, saying God is sovereign means not only saying God, God knew you were going to spill your coffee this morning, but it means saying God actually ordained you were going to spill your coffee this morning. Like he kind of planned that out from the start. Uh, I remember hearing a guy give a message once, and the guy definitely had this view of sovereignty because the message was all about God's sovereignty. And he told a story about hitting his head in the kitchen. And he said that there was a sweetness in hitting his head because when it happened, he remembered that God is sovereign and therefore God must have planned this out since the beginning of the world. Um, now, as you can imagine, if you define sovereignty in this way, there really is no room for a meaningful concept of free will. Um, because if God controls everything, then he controls your choices, too. Right? Uh, and if he controls your choices, I don't think you have free will in a meaningful sense. Now, some people will redefine free will. I don't want to get too too much into the details. They'll define free will in a way that technically you still have it. But personally, I don't buy it. I, I don't think it works. Um, what they say is we might feel like we make choices, but ultimately, because God is sovereign, God has kind of made those choices for us. He's put the will into us, and then we act on the will. Now, this understanding of sovereignty, it has an advantage. It's neat and tidy. Right? Uh, there is a simplicity to it. Uh, everything that happens, God planned, God's in control, period. But it has at least one really serious flaw. 
in my mind, which is, if this is true, what is sin? What in the world is sin, if this is true? Um, most of us, if we were asked to define sin, we'll say it's any action that is opposed to the will of God. Um, but if we understand sovereignty as God controls everything, sorry, if we understand sovereignty as God controls everything, then nothing that happens isn't the will of God. Everything that happens is the will of God. Right? But on my reading, the whole story of Scripture makes no sense at all unless we assume that there are things that happen in the world that are not God's will, things that he doesn't like. Um, the book of James, I think, really confirms that. James 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So, in other words, when we make sinful choices and when we fall into temptation, God doesn't ordain that. God's not the author of that. God doesn't cause that. Right? That's, that's us. That's not God. So what this inevitably, inevitably means is that there are things that happen in the world that are not God's will, because that's what sin is. Uh, God doesn't approve or ordain of lying or of stealing or idolatry or assault or anything like that. But those things happen, right? And so what I want to suggest is that we need a different understanding of sovereignty, what sovereignty is, in order to account for the story in Scripture, a different understanding other than God controls everything. Um, because if we're going to believe that sin is real and that God isn't the author of sin, this, this idea of sovereignty as God controls everything is very problematic. So the understanding of sovereignty that I think is more fitting and more in line with what we see in Scripture is what you might call a political understanding of sovereignty. When we use the word sovereign, if we're not talking theology, that's usually what we're talking about, right? We're talking about politics. We talk about a, a nation is sovereign or a king is sovereign. And when we say that a king is sovereign, uh, what we mean is that the king uh, makes decisions about how the land is going to be governed, right? The king establishes laws. The king enforces laws. Uh, the king decides what to do when the laws are broken, right? But the king doesn't make decisions for what everybody in the kingdom is going to do, right? He doesn't pull all the strings. Um, and, you know, there, there are things that happen in, in the kingdom that the king doesn't like, but that doesn't mean the king isn't a sovereign, right? The king is still the supreme authority, and the king still gets to decide what happens when people resist his will. So I think when we understand sovereignty in this way, it does allow for some degree of what we would call freedom of the will or um, some degree of human freedom. So that's kind of a long answer to the question. I would also like to put it in a more succinct way. Um, how does free will have a place if God is sovereign? To say that God is sovereign is to say that God is the one who ultimately chooses how to order creation. That's another way of understanding sovereignty. That God is the one who ultimately chooses how to order the creation. God is the creator, and he's the one who decides what the creation is going to be like. Okay? Therefore, 
God could have sovereignly chosen to create a world where people have some measure of free will. And I, I, like I said, the story of Scripture does not make sense to me if that's not part of the story. Um, and I think we see this, God exercising his sovereignty in this way, from the very beginning. Uh, we're told in, in Genesis that God creates human beings in his image, right? Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So to be made in God's image, right, is to have power to rule over the rest of creation. But you can't rule over the rest of creation if you don't have any real power of choice. Right? Because if you don't have any, any true freedom, what you are is sort of a machine where everything's been predetermined and it's just sort of you're, you're a slave to the past right? or a slave to your instincts. Right? But what, what separates us from every other creature is that we have this unique capacity not just to be a slave completely to instinct or to what's gone on, on in the past. Um, and, uh, and that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So I think we see from the beginning of the story in Scripture that God gives to humanity a certain measure of power, right? And it's this power that can be used either for good or for ill. It's power that can be used to either bless the creation or to curse and hurt the creation. And again, that's not to say that God is not sovereign. It's just that he has sovereignly chosen to make human beings in his image, and that means granting them some measure of power to rule. So if we have this more nuanced understanding of sovereignty than just God controls everything, uh, then we, I don't think we have this major conflict between God's sovereignty and some degree of human freedom. And the last thing I want to add about this is if Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of the nature of God, uh, this understanding of sovereignty shouldn't trouble us. It shouldn't bother us. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, it says... The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The exact representation of his being. So, that means that the best way for us to understand what God is like is by looking at Jesus. Jesus is the supreme revelation of the nature of God. And when we look at Jesus, what do we see? We see a God who is willing to limit himself in order to be in relationship with us, right? Because we see, a, I mean, in order for God to take on human flesh and be born as a baby in Bethlehem, that is a radical uh, act of humiliation, right? To become a baby that can't walk or talk um, or, or even feed himself, right? And then to be subjected to death and suffering and dying on a cross, so if we're looking to Jesus to help us to understand the character of God, we see a God who's willing to give up his rights and power in order to be in relationship with us. And so it would make sense then that if Jesus is what God is like, then we shouldn't expect God's sovereignty to be exercised primarily just by controlling everything. <clears throat> It would make sense that God's sovereignty would, would involve him choosing to limit his power to some extent. Of course, I say limit, and I put that in quotes. 
okay? And I even put power in quotes, because I think as human beings, we have a flawed view of what real power looks like. What real power looks like is Jesus dying on the cross. <clears throat> but it would make sense that God's sovereignty would involve him choosing to limit his power in order to have real relationship with us, because he can't have real relationship with a puppet. And remember we talked about God wanting to create and, and that, it, that desire to create being similar to our desire to have children that might, might, might be roughly analogous to that. Do you want your kids just to be automatons? You know? Do you want to make... No. You want to have a real relationship with them. But anyway, we could talk about that question for the rest of this morning. It's a huge one. And if you have follow-up questions, just email them to me. Like I said, I love talking about, about this topic. And if you disagree... I don't see this as something that we need to split fellowship over or anything like that. Um, but that is my, my honest opinion on that. So that's all we have time for this morning. Uh, but I just want to say something about um, why I wanted to do this this morning. So in my own journey of faith, I have gone through some very dark periods of time where I wrestled a lot with doubt and... Um, I, uh, I felt like there were questions I had that other people might not be asking, and I, I wasn't sure what to do with them. And uh, it was so valuable to me during those times to sit down with other people who loved Jesus and to wrestle through those things and to be given the space and the freedom to do that, where if I brought something up, I just didn't immediately get shut down um, or, you know, that people didn't just react in fear, like, don't, you know, don't talk about that. Um, and so it's very important to me that this church is a place where people feel free to bring up tough questions, to talk about them, to sometimes disagree over them. You know, I want this to be a place like that because I do believe that God, God can handle us asking tough questions. I believe that part of having a fully engaged, active faith, part of a true, truly devoted faith, an active devotion, is asking those tough questions. It's dealing with them. Because the more you, you get into your faith, the more you think about it, the more you try to live it out, the more questions you're going to have. Um, so I really want St. Paul's to be a place where we can do that. And uh, so hopefully you feel a little more like that's the case. And uh, hopefully we can do this again in the future. So keep asking questions. As they come up, feel free to send them to me. And uh, again, I'm sorry I didn't get to all of them, but uh, hopefully in the future. I know, I know now what a lot of you guys are thinking, <laughs> so that can influence uh, some of where we head in the future. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you uh, for your wisdom, God. We pray that you would help all of us uh, to seek after it. Uh, we pray that as we uh, search the scriptures, God, that you would give us insight. Um, and Lord, I, uh, <clears throat> I thank you for each person here, Lord. I thank you for the questions that um, have, been, have been asked. And I pray, Lord, that whatever questions people might have, whatever follow-up questions people might have based on what was said today, that you would minister to them right where they're at, God. Um, that, you would, uh, that you would meet them. Um, that you would speak your truth to them, God, um, that you would fill them with wisdom and insight and the uh, courage uh, to act on whatever you reveal, Lord. And I give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.